0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, the first ever recorded live before an audience episode of UConn 360, which is the well. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. Yes, <laughs> it's it's the world's only podcast that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Uh, some of you may be wondering what the podcast is. So, you know, briefly, about a year ago, uh, my colleagues Julie Bartuka. hi. Ken Best. That's me. And myself. My name's Tom Breen. We uh, decided that podcasting was a great tool to tell the stories of the University of Connecticut to new audiences. So we brainstormed, and, and this is what we came up with. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you a brief kind of introduction of what the show will be. We have two great guests who will be with us today. We'll be telling about very interesting things, very different aspects of the university. Um, what we normally do in our show is we have something called Husky Headlines, which is a pleasing alliteration. Um, but this time around, since it's homecoming weekend, and we want to thank UConn alumni for arranging this for us. And also, everyone, I should say too that we are at the Next Gen Forum Room in the beautiful Peter J. Worth Tower on the Storrs campus. And thanks to everyone at uh, the Worth Tower for helping us out. Um, so, what we'll be doing is we'll be talking about some headlines from years past, uh, homecoming headlines, if you will. We'll uh, introduce and interview our guests, and then we'll finish up talking a bit about some UConn history. Without further ado, why don't we get started? Why don't we start talking about some uh, of our homecoming headlines? What we did is we went back and looked at past editions of the student newspaper going back to the 1890s when it was called The Lookout from the month of October, because it's now October 26th as we're recording this, and we found some interesting headlines to maybe highlight ways in which the university has changed and ways in which it's remained the same. (laughs) Julie, why don't you get us started?
1: All righty. So, uh, in October 1896, the Storrs Agricultural College Lookout was a monthly publication. And it wasn't really so much a newspaper as a diary. Um, It's full of text, not really any headlines to be found. And this issue details the membership of the student body at the time. Fourteen seniors, 17 juniors, with just one female student in each class, 18 sophomores and 22 freshmen. The lower classes had five and eight females respectively. The writer of that story said that the current students had the highest moral standards of any in the school's history. Not really sure how he found that out. Um, Other news in this issue included the board of trustees appropriating funds to build a blacksmith shop, the dedication of the ladies cottage where the female students would live, and stores winning a football game over Rockville High School 16 to (laughs) six. Uh, But the paper says very few of the students attended the football game at Rockville. I think that the team would feel more at home if they only had a few of their college mates to cheer them up once in a while. And then jumping ahead a couple of decades, front page news in the Connecticut campus, it was named then, on October 30th, 1917, included a record-large freshman class of a whopping 66 students. But now we're up to 29 girls, so um, just I did learn today while researching that Yale didn't have female students until 1969, so we were way ahead of them on that. Uh, so more than ever before, this is the most girls we had had so far. Students came from every New England state as well as New York and New Jersey, and this paper also announces the news that the sophomores won the annual rope pull over the freshmen, sending the losing team into the campus pond in eight minutes. That same paper has the obit for Alfred Gurdon Gully, the agriculture professor for whom the modern day building where the president's office and some other administrative office, offices are, is named. And then I found what I think is the best story ever in the October 24th, 1919 Connecticut campus, which was by then a weekly paper. It's called Girls Flunk Course for the Love of It. Do Not Want to Finish <laughs> Housekeeping. Resort to Strategy in Order to Obtain Lois Marks. Yes, it's true. There's a course on the hill which can boast such devotedness on the part of its followers that they not only wish to flunk the course, but also endeavor to prove to their instructors by one means or another that their mark should be an E or an F. They gave out Es back then. In fact, that they should be compelled to complete the course. This course was called Practice Housekeeping. And last year, while one of the girls was serving a meal, she accidentally dropped a spoon. Her instructor told her any waitress who dropped a spoon would be given an F. And so they all started to drop their silverware. Um, And then it goes on to say, already this year, one of the waitresses has found a means maybe more effective than silver in helping her attain a low mark. Her plan, which she carried out to perfection, was, while serving the whipped cream-covered dessert, to let one of the servings slip from her grasp, to clutch it frantically, catch it, drop it again, this is all in here, and finally land it, splash, on the gown of one of the innocent diners. Such is the devotion to practice house, but think of the wasted whipped cream. (laughs) Your turn
2: my turn <laughs> uh, let's fast forward to 1938 october 25th the headline was dole issues warning a warning against further inter-class disturbances was issued by dean sumner dole to proctors last week it seems to me that the hazing period should be about over he stated and that horseplay which disturbs the whole community late at night should be discontinued therefore i am asking you to use your very best efforts to reduce To a minimum, the disturbances like that which occurred late Tuesday evening, there's no explanation what he was talking about. (laughs) But uh, we can let our imaginations run wild. (laughs) And then let's jump forward a little bit more, closer to this part of the century. Private phone installation underway in residence halls, for those of you who remember when there were phones in the residence halls the installation of private telephones in the rooms of students desiring them is underway so far one phone has been installed on a trial (laughs) basis this installation will be inspected by representatives from the phone company and the university and if it meets the specifications satisfactorily other phones will be installed in a similar fashion so far 20 applications for telephones have been received
0: wow Uh, So uh, jumping ahead to October 25th, 1968, uh, Julie alluded to this earlier, the headline in the paper was, and there's no byline, which was pretty common back then, the the headline was Yale Recruiting Yukon Coeds, and the story started this way, the Bulldogs of Yale are coming to Yukon on the trail for mates this week. (laughs) (laughs) So,
1: that's problematic. That's problematic. I wouldn't
0: say that anymore. Uh, the Eli's will be here to recruit UConn women for an experiment in co-education to be held at Yale the week of November 4th. So, uh, as Julie mentioned, Yale was actually an all-male school at this time, and they came to Shippey Hall and interviewed uh, women at UConn. They ultimately chose 40 women to come and attend class at Yale for one week and live in Yale dorm rooms that had been vacated by male students, um, which is fascinating to me. And. Uh,
2: did same. we hear what the results of the experiment were? Well, they ultimately Yale, Yale
0: they went co-ed, so I think that UConn went made a, a big impression in New Haven. And now finally, uh, our last uh, uh, headline from the past was October 26, 1977, so 41 years ago today, and the headline was UConn's Seeking Alternative to Sneeze Guards. <laughs> uh, missing sneeze guards in the alumni quadrangle dormitories, which are required by state law, have not been purchased because the university is looking for cheaper alternatives, (laughs) according to the head of food services. So sadly, the story did not explain how or why the sneeze guards went missing. Uh, It's a mystery. It's a mystery. I don't know what people would do with sneeze guards. Actually, I I don't want to know what people would do with sneeze guards. Um, (laughs) So that's UConn in the past, some uh, similarities, some differences. Uh, But now, why don't we get into the part of our program where we meet some of our special guests. Julie, you're going to introduce our first guest. Tell us all about this person.
1: I will. I'll tell you a little bit about this person. I'm going to let her tell you more. But um, we are going to welcome Margaret Ubega, who is an ornithology professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology here at UConn and Connecticut State Ornithologist. Hi, Margaret. Hi there. <laughs> um, so I know everyone knows, I hope, ornithology is the study of birds and may not have known that Connecticut had a state ornithologist. What does being that entail?
3: Well, let me say first of all that being the state ornithologist gets me a cup of coffee anywhere in this <laughs> state, 250 dollars 50 if I'm at a Starbucks cheaper <laughs> elsewhere. <laughs> uh, the other thing it entails tends to be a certain amount of trouble. Um, the state ornithologist was established in 1913 by state statute some legislator up at, the, up at the state house said, wait, we're, t- we're paying some guy to teach them about what? <laughs> <laughs> and they decided they better wring some more value out of, the, out of the, the professor getting paid to teach ornithology classes. So the state statute, which is still on the books, says the Connecticut's, the, the professor who teaches ornithology at what was then the, the state agricultural college shall serve without additional pay That part's kind of critical. As the state ornithologist and advise the state legislature on matters of importance to the state concerning birds.
1: And you do that, you
3: still do that. I do that, the, the sort of remit of the state ornithologist has broadened quite a lot since 1913 when they would haul the state ornithologist up there and say, What about hawks taking chickens? Should we be letting people shoot them when they were interested in whether or not um, birds were important for controlling agricultural pests, right, we had a very agricultural-based economy at the time, and that's not true anymore. Um, I tend to have um, interaction with state legislators when somebody wants to change a statute or do something that's a little controversial. (laughs) So when um, people who are interested in falconry, which is a sport where you take a live hawk and you keep it in captivity and use it to hunt with, when they wanted to make it legal for falconers to take hawks from the wild, to catch them from the wild to train to do this, there was some kerfluffle around a lot of birders in the state didn't want that to be legal, and the falconers did. And the state ornithologist is big enough to hide behind if you're a state legislator <clears throat> in that circumstance. It also entails a lot now of um, conservation minded nonprofits like the National Audubon Society in Connecticut or um, the Nature Conservancy <clears throat> when they're considering things that have to do with birds. I tend to get called. I tend to get asked to sit on state committees that have to do with the status of birds in the state. But I also just get a lot of phone calls from regular folks who wanna know something. Who think they have
1: the rarest bird in their backyard.
3: There there are (laughs) folks who, who have a field guide and are and, and know just enough about how to use it to be a little dangerous. <laughs> um, I have in the past gotten phone calls from from folks, and one in particular in which someone who lived in Ashford, just up the road, um, called my office and said, "Is this the state ornithologist?" And I said, "Yes, this is." And he said. I I thought I should call somebody because I have a really rare bird in my in my yard at my feeder. I've never seen one of these before. I said, Oh, how, how do you know that it's rare? I looked it up in the book, and it's a McKay's bunting. And I said, Well, I'm pretty sure it's not a McKay's bunting. No, I looked it up in the book, and it looks just like a McKay's bunting. And I said, Well, that would that would be very rare since. N- there's never been a sighting of a McKay's bunting anywhere in the continental United States, <laughs> and we are in Connecticut. You know, if you were out on Attu Island at the end of the Bering, you know, Islands chain, I might, I might buy a. Maybe you should take a picture and send it to me. That wasn't very gratifying for him. In <laughs> <laughs> he just hung up, and I and I never got to see the picture. But I'm still pretty sure it wasn't case <laughs> Bunting.
1: I think you're right. Um, so let's back up a little bit. Um, how did you get into ornithology in the first place?
3: Oh well, um, if you had pegged me at five, you would not have have pegged me as a person who would end up doing what I am doing. I was a very very bookish kid. Um, it was hard work to get me to raise my head from the book. But in high school. I had a really fantastic marine biology teacher who got us outside a whole lot, and through that teacher got connected um, to someone at Project Oceanology, which is based down at our Avery Point campus, who took me out on a weekend work trip to a place called Great Gull Island. It's a field station of the American Museum of Natural Histories, out in the middle of Long Island Sound. It's the biggest, Um, tern colony for an endangered species of bird called a a roseate tern in the western hemisphere. The island is a little less than a mile long and it has on the order of about 30,000 birds on it during the breeding season. So you get off the boat and you're immediately surrounded by clouds of these birds who are all screaming and Mm Uh, yelling because you're close to their nests and they're pooping on you and <laughs> swooping at your head and trying to hit you. And I got off on the dock and looked up and thought, oh, hell yeah. <laughs>
1: and that was it. That was it. That's a week great. on, on Great Island was all it took. Wow. And now you've been at the university 20 years. How did you end up here?
3: Oh, well, that's a funny story because I'm a Connecticut Um, I was not born in Connecticut, but I still kind of think of myself as a Connecticut native because I grew up down in Groton. And uh, I did my graduate work out on the West Coast, and I did my postdoctoral work in Reno, Nevada. And if you're an academic, by the time you get to the stage where you're competitive for a professor's job, you're going to end up moving wherever there is a job. They're not laying around on the ground like unfound pennies. You know, jobs as a professor, and so you're prepared to move anywhere. And a job at UConn opened up for someone who could teach an ornithology class, and I thought, well, yeah, figure the odds, but it can't hurt to apply. So I applied, and I got an interview, and I thought, wow, I'm. Um, I, this is going to make mom way too excited because there's no way I'm going to get this job, but she'll be happy I got the free trip home. (laughs) So I came out and I did the interview, um, which was fantastic because the department I'm in, the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, just seemed to be full of all these people who were so excited about what they did and were intellectually so exciting to be around and they all, and this was the strange part, seemed to be very, very nice <laughs> and to really like one another and I thought, well that does it. I'm definitely not getting getting this job now. And then they offered it to me.
1: I'm very glad you're here. Um, My mother gears. was ecstatic. <laughs> <laughs> shifting gears a little bit. You mentioned you had a teacher um, who got you kind of looking up out of your book. And something that you do is make sure students look up. And you also use technology to do this, which is kind of almost counterintuitive because you use Twitter, which is kind of people are known for you know, staring down at their phones. And talk about how you use that in your classes.
3: Well, the Twitter assignment, to be fair to the students... I'll just have to say, I did not expect it to work as well as it has. I really conceived of this assignment as a way to use their phones against them. (laughs) Um, Right after Twitter launched, you know, all of us who teach where everybody's wringing their hands about how obsessed people are with their phones and how they don't really look around at the world anymore, Twitter launches. It's something that you can do on a mobile app from your phone, and I thought, well, can't hurt to try. So I ginned up this assignment in which students have the assignment outside of class so many times a semester they are supposed to post to Twitter where they are, what they're seeing in the bird life around them, and somehow connect that to course content. And then they have to attach this hashtag, hashtag bird class, all one word, to the the tweet. And I just wanted to use the phone to prompt them to kind of look around and see that there were birds. And and more than that, to see that contrary to your Discovery Channel sort of sense of the world, all this really fantastic stuff that we're seeing um, in class is not just happening in Borneo and these exotic places. It's, It's right out there on the sidewalk, right here.
1: Yeah. So um, on that note, what kind of birds can we see in this season right around this area? Give us some birdwatching tips.
3: Birdwatching tips. Okay. <laughs> My
1: fall migration is on. So
3: get out there and take advantage. Um, at the moment, I would say that the big thing that is going on, especially locally, if you're on campus this weekend, sparrows, sparrow-sized birds are pouring through right now all the sparrows are on the move headed headed south, so there's a lot of white-crowned sparrows around, there's a lot of white-throated sparrows around, song sparrows, fox sparrows. Um, at the moment, someone in um, uh, nearby, I've forgotten the name of the town, just momentarily has um, evening grosbeaks in her yard that is a little rare. Uh, they're really fantastic birds. They're not... Um, totally unheard of, but they're not super common. Um, Certainly any day of the week here on campus, you can see um, vultures and red-tailed hawks. Uh, People have been seeing in the area bald eagles. Um, Bald eagles have really made a spectacular comeback in the state, so when I was a student, you really had to work to see bald eagles. It's not like that now.
1: Very cool. Well, I wanna tell everybody, if you're interested in uh, Margaret's work and her humor and her Twitter and all of that, um, check out UConn Magazine's fall 2017 issue for a fantastic story. Um, It's at magazine.uconn.edu. And thank you very much, Margaret.
0: You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor. And now uh, Ken Best is gonna introduce our second guest.
2: Coach. There's so much I can tell you about Coach Jim Penders that I did a profile on him last year in UConn Magazine. But there are several important things that that have to be mentioned. Uh, First, there's been a coach named Jim Penders in the dugout on a baseball field in Connecticut since 1946 uh, when uh, Jim W. Penders started coaching at his alma mater at Stratford High School where he led the team for 38 years. His son, Jim E. Penders, coached for 43 years at East Catholic in Manchester, and both are Hall of Famers, and they both have baseball fields named after him. Jim F. Penders is our guest. He's uh, the grandson and son of these uh, coaches, and he's now in his 15th year here at UConn Coaching, but he's been part of the program for 26 of the last 28 years as a student athlete, assistant coach, and now as the head coach. And um, most importantly, when we talk about baseball, You want to get to the major leagues. Uh, Four former Huskies right now are in Major League Baseball out of the 43 who have been signed while Jim has been coaching. Uh, Nick Ahmed is with the Diamondbacks. Scott Oberg is with the Colorado Rockies. George Springer of the Astros, last year's MVP in the World Series, uh, who was playing up until last week. And now a guy named Matt Barnes, who's tonight in Los Angeles uh, preparing for Game 3 of the World Series uh, with his team that lives – North of here, so coach, welcome. <laughs> Thanks,
4: Ken. Appreciate it. Great to be here.
2: Uh, it's obviously baseball season, the best time of the year for the World Series, and I know you've been watching uh, your guys. We
4: have, yeah, and we had one. We had a fifth. Not to correct you, we had a fifth. I want to give him credit. John Andrioli broke in this year okay. and finished the season with the Baltimore Orioles. So five Huskies were up at some point during the year this this past season, and it's been incredibly gratifying to watch them flourish, and and especially to see Matt. Uh, Barnes and George Springer and Scott Oberg all in the postseason. Um, And Matt now in the World Series. We were guaranteed to have uh, a Husky in the World Series when George and Matt both faced off. Two roommates, uh, two longtime friends and uh, teammates from even before. They came to us. They played for the same uh, travel baseball program, and uh, both great people. I call them kids. They'll always be kids to me, but uh, they're adults. George got married last year in uh, Newport Beach, California. I was privileged to be there, and Matt's going to get married this January down in Bonita Springs, Florida, so they also provide nice little vacation spots for their wedding, so good excuse to get away.
2: Uh, The legacy in your family and in the history of UConn uh, I know is important to you. Uh, It's something that you talk about, and we were talking earlier about uh, the history of of what goes on here. Uh, How do you try to convey that to your players? Because players these days are in the moment a lot, and uh, getting them to understand what it means to put on that uniform that says Connecticut on the front. Yeah, we
4: we talk about it a lot, but we we try to model. You know, we have mottos, M-O-T-T-O-S, but we try to model uh, what's important to us every day and and, and uh, as as a teacher I think that that's one aspect that can make you very effective we'll we'll speak about Charles and Augusta stores and you know the gift of $5,000 and a few buildings and 1881 and the origins of the University and how it's it really is we we, we can't venture far as, as much as we've grown uh, I think we still have to remain true to their vision and that's in order to do that, if you want to make better farmers, they want to make better farmers. Um, you got to get up earlier than everybody else. You can't be afraid to get your hands dirty. You have to do what's necessary for growth. Um, you have to cultivate and, uh, and take great care and attention to detail. So we try to do those things on a daily basis, but we, uh, we do. We, we remind the guys that that's, that's who we are. That's who we are. It's about hard work, and that's what's going to separate us from our competition.
2: Along with that, one of the things that was very evident in talking with your players uh, when I was working on the story, and which Gino Oriema, our Hall of Fame uh, women's basketball coach, mentioned that uh, he thinks you're the probably the best coach that we've got on this campus, given the challenges of. Were you co-
4: co- sharing a bottle of wine? No, no, no. <laughs> no. He he sent,
2: he sent that automatically, uh, or a couple. That 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 you know, you're, you're coaching in a cold weather climate. And it's not easy to have the success that our teams have had when they can't play all year round, like some of the warm weather teams that we compete against in our conference right now.
4: Uh, it's very kind of coach Oriam. I almost uh, fainted when I read those lines of his and uh, he's by far the best coach on this, on this uh, campus and uh, one of the best coaches in the world. Uh, he's proven that time and time again, but uh yeah, we, we've done well with, with the, where we're at right now. You know, the conference to us, and I know there's some sports on campus that uh, would argue that the, the conference has hurt their performance. In our case, it's actually, you know, our sport is, is dominated by Southern and Western teams and Western programs, Southern programs. We've had, uh, with, the, with the new conference alignment, uh, you know, we're the only team, well, Cincinnati and, and us are the only two that are north of the Mason-Dixon line, and, and um, you know, they're pretty far south, too, if you look at a map, but we, we're benefited by the fact that we're playing in stadiums on the road that seat 7,000 and 6,000, and, and they fill them up. At Tulane and East Carolina and Houston, uh, Memphis, South Florida, Central Florida. So it's really benefited us in being able not necessarily to recruit those areas, but to go up against them. If we finish in the top half of our league, we're playing for championships at the national level now. Whereas in the old conference, that wasn't the case. So uh, we certainly don't aim to finish in the top half. That'll get you fired here. Um, You know, we don't spend what we spend in athletics to come in second place. It's the idea is to win championships. So. we aim to win championships but if we miss we're in a a conference now that uh we still get a second chance to compete for a national championship if we don't come in first
2: the year that we hosted the NCAA tournament in uh, Norwich was very significant uh in letting people know what was going on here uh how did it change your thinking a little bit about how you were approaching the program because uh, I do remember that post-game press conference when you started talking about uh the Store's brothers and what it meant yeah. uh, and the legacy that uh, these these kids have to uh, remember when they're on the field.
4: Well I, I think it kind of comes to me naturally and that you mentioned the two Jim Penders that have fields named after them in the state um, neither of them are named for the coach at the University of Connecticut nor should they be. I, I'm trying to not screw it up every day you know trying not to screw up the, the last name trying not trying to uh, to enhance everything that we're doing on the field and we had a great season in 2010 and we've had some great seasons since but Um, I'd never want to diminish what happened before us. You know, we have five college World Series appearances, and I haven't been to Omaha yet with my team. So we still have a long way to go. Um, And I don't know if I've changed that much, to be honest with you. I think it's all about recruiting good people from good families. They have to be really strong students. That may have changed. That certainly changed in the last 10, 15 years. They have to be uh, much better students than they were 10 and 15 years ago. Uh, But uh, we want to get the best of the best. and, And the idea is to keep the best connecticut player in connecticut uh, the state has enough really good baseball players that if we were to do that we'd win not just conference championships but national championships and that makes our sport rather unique on this campus too you know football can't do that they have to go outside the state basketball has to go outside the state soccer has to go outside the state and sometimes outside the country uh, we can if we were to keep the absolute best here we can win a national championship.
2: Uh, There are plans underway right now to uh, help that along with the new facility. Uh, It's something I know you've been working on for a while. Uh, Can you tell us where we are right now?
4: Yeah, my first meeting on the stadium was in November of 2003. Uh, Doug Elliott, um, now of the Hartford, uh, alum, 1982 graduate, uh, School of Business, um, was at the Travelers at the time. We had a meeting in the top floor of the Travelers, which uh, was beautiful and and is beautiful gorgeous boardroom up there in the november of 03 and it's been a long and arduous process but we're we can smell home plate um on the new in the new ballpark we're breaking ground ceremonially this weekend uh that may have been postponed with the rain that we're supposed to have but we're going to have a shovel in the ground for real on the site in november and um i'm gonna i may uh, get a little emotional seeing that but i i I know I'm going to be emotional when we actually get to coach and compete in that facility because it will. It'll get us closer. Um, it's going to put us on a par. Uh, it's going to be a gorgeous facility um, when it's completed and put us on a par with our peers in the conference. Uh, just. Uh, and also in the state. I mean, we don't have. We, I say all the time we have the seventh best Division I facility in Connecticut. Um, we have the second best uh we have the fourth best among state universities central connecticut eastern connecticut and southern have superior facilities to our game day facility and we have the second best in town because eastern's is actually in mansfield so we have the second best college facility in town so we need to we we've needed to do something for a long time the need was identified um susan herbst and and david benedict have done an unbelievable job and in spearheading this project uh doug elliott who i mentioned before has been incredible. Doug and Sheila have been so supportive. So uh, it's going to happen. It's finally going to happen. Uh, we were talking
2: earlier about a new uh, wrinkle in the program uh, that hopefully will get going, uh, I guess, in the spring with uh, the baseball reminiscence program that uh, Professor Michael Echo down at the Stanford campus has been talking about for a number of years. He's been working on a program in Greenwich. There's only a couple of others in the United States. And uh, your kids are going to be involved uh, sometime soon with that.
4: And you're partially to blame. (laughs) The article that you – or the piece that you wrote in UConn today really grabbed my attention, I guess, a year and a half ago now. I happen to be reading that on my couch um, at home and uh, just sent an email to uh, Dr. Ego uh, that evening. And uh, we kind of took it from there. And that we we hadn't met, actually, until this week. But we had been in touch, and I offered uh, our guys, our team – Uh, up and and we like to do a lot of community service and and social social uh, service around campus Um, we need to get outside our comfort zones we we tend in in athletics unfortunately to stay in our own bubble and that's not healthy Um, you know our our guys can learn a lot more from the music major on their floor in their in the residence hall than they can from the shortstop that they may share a room with so we need to get outside more and um, outside that bubble and this is one way in which we can do do so our kids are Young men are great with, with kids who are playing baseball or seven and eight years old, but I think it would be fantastic to get them around some seniors um, who love baseball. And, uh, and Michael's doing some amazing work. Um, In trying to recapture some memories with with baseball as a common theme. Our players also don't really appreciate the history of the game, so I think it could be a a real nice marriage. Um, And if if Larry Gramling, who's a great friend and supporter, uh, recently retired. He's got some spare time on his hands from the School of Business, so he's also going to help uh, Dr. Ego, and we can't wait to get started. Uh,
2: Of the many stories that that your players and uh, coaches told me – one of the ones that is constant was the uh, the championship uh, that you wanted to win uh, in Florida when you were named
4: Coach of the Year. Oh. I guess <laughs> you want
2: to you want to repeat that for us.
4: Uh, I've used it a couple times. I've used it twice. You have to wait at least four or five years in between okay. performances when they when you get a new crop of players. But I uh, my first Coach of the Year I think was. 06 or 07 I think 06 2006 my third or fourth year and um I was voted coach of the year by my peers and I was honored to be coach of the year but we were getting ready to compete for our conference championship and I brought the team down for an impromptu pep talk um at the end of the banquet in which we were I was awarded that and was moved that the players all stood up and gave me a nice hand I took the plaque that they gave me uh, and gave them a little pep talk down near the Gulf of Mexico and had a few choice words and threw the thing into the Gulf of Mexico (laughs) and said, I I want the trophy that they're giving out on Sunday, not at the banquet on Tuesday night. And the only mistake I made was I should have waited to find a body of water right before the first pitch because they were ready to go that night and uh, (laughs) they weren't. Ex- as ready to go the next day. We did win the next game, but we lost two after that and uh, had an early exit from the tournament. So live and learn. Next time you got to do it closer to the first pitch.
2: Um, what are we looking at this, uh, this spring with the team? Uh, I know every year is a different year, and uh, you, you lose some guys to graduation, and uh, then you have to bring new players in. And, mm-hmm. and baseball is, is one of those sports where you have to take time.
4: Yeah, we're undefeated right now, which is a good sign. We haven't played any games yet, but uh, we're undefeated. We, we, um, we have a good group. I really like the character, um, and every coach believes they're going to have good chemistry um, before a travel list is posted, before cuts are made, final cuts are made, before... Uh, a lineup is made out. (laughs) So we just hope to maintain. They have a really nice connectivity right now. We had a good season last year. We lost in uh, the regional final to the University of Washington, who went on to uh, the other Huskies, went on to uh, the College World Series. But a good cast of characters led by Mason Fioli, our left-handed pitcher who was on Team USA, the collegiate national team this summer, didn't give up an earned run at the highest level, represented us against Japan and Cuba, and did a fantastic job. so um, we have him back. Jake Wallace is a bullpen um, arm that we, we're going to rely on a lot, and our starting shortstops back. We did lose some some pitching and, and our starting catcher to the draft, uh, but uh, I'm excited. I'm optimistic. I always I always am this time of year, and uh, looking forward to getting started. We're nowhere near ready. Um, And I think if you ask any coach, you know, they're not going to be ready this early in the season, but uh, we have some time left and and, and the right attitude, and hopefully with the right attitude, concentration, and effort, anything's possible.
2: And I know you have to meet with a recruit uh, sometime this afternoon. So we're going to wrap it up and say thanks for stopping by. We appreciate it.
4: I appreciate you having me. Thanks Thanks a lot, Ken.
0: Thank you very much, Coach. Uh, I, for one, am looking forward to seeing some games in the new facility. Um, uh, all right, so that that, that just about uh, wraps things up. We're going to uh, talk a little bit about history, uh, the history corner, we call it. Um, we call and-
1: it Tom's history corner. He's being modest.
0: We're still
2: waiting for the new name.
0: Yeah, we're still working on a new name, so if you okay. have any suggestions. Um, Julie- <laughs> Julie's going to help me. Uh, we made some uh, visual aids because podcasting is such a visually rich medium. Uh, <laughs> now, we'll post these pictures uh, on the Yukon today, um, I think, if Elizabeth lets us. Uh, and <laughs> what we did is we found some old photos of previous homecomings, because we kind of wanted to talk about the ways that homecoming has changed. And this first photo, I'll describe it for our listeners. It's a group of people in colonial garb, and they're in a band, a parade. They're marching. Does anyone know where they are on campus? That's an easy one. So they're in a place called... Yeah, it's Coach. Yes, behind Holly Armory, yes, the, 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 the official name was Gardner Dow Field. Gardner Dow was a student at UConn who was actually uh, left the university to serve in World War I, came home, uh, survived the Spanish flu, and then uh, came back to UConn, played football, and actually died during an away game against the University of New Hampshire. So imagine surviving World War I and the Spanish influenza epidemic and then dying on a football field. His students decided to honor him by naming Gardner Dow Field after him, and that was where uh, Gardner Dow Field and Holly Armory was the heart of UConn athletics for many, many years. Uh, anything indoors was played inside Hawley Armory. A lot of the outdoor games were played in Dow Field. Uh, and then when Memorial Stadium was built, some other facilities were built. Other buildings started encroaching. And today, Gardner Dow Field is—it's uh, the Homer Babbage Library, and it's a classroom building. And uh, for a while, some of you may remember, it was the home of the UConn Co-op when it had that wedge-shaped building. Uh, There's a plaque, actually, commemorating Gardner Dow on the wall that you couldn't see for many, many years because it was hidden by um, the co-op. So If you get a chance, you should go by, check the plaque out. Um, Next. So this is is 1950. This is the class of 1910, and it's a group of distinguished-looking alums. They're all wearing, I think, white smocks for some reason. Uh, (laughs) Does anyone know why they have a goat? This is not a rhetorical question where I have the answer. I was actually hoping... Someone oh would know God. why they had a goat. Um, it, you know, so we've only been the Huskies since the 1930s. <laughs> Before that, we had a variety of nicknames for our teams, but I don't think we were ever the Goats. I hope not. I'm not sure, but uh, they had a goat, and the goats also wearing a smock. I don't think the goat was from the class of 1910. <laughs> uh, and then there's a, another parade. Um, also, the goat, gar- The,
2: goat, also the, goats, smocks, the goats in the parade.
0: The goat is, in, goat is leading the parade. So those of you uh, alums, uh, after this, I believe you go to the next event where you get your goat. No. uh, So this was a, I guess the goat was a kind of feature of homecoming, uh, and there were matching costumes. I don't really know what homecoming was uh, in those days. It's very different today. It actually seems a little more fun today than kind of walking around in smocks with a goat. Or maybe not. I don't know, depending on what you like. Uh, And so our final... Yes, okay, so we, we were delighted to find this picture. Um, uh, and the entire class of 1887 made it to their 40th reunion. The whole class, everyone who graduated in 1887, came to UConn in 1927 for homecoming for their class reunion to be together. And there was a picture of all of them together. Uh, there were six graduates. As you can see, <laughs> uh, or, or, or our listeners cannot see, but there are six graduates. They're very distinguished-looking graduates. They're all named um, but we wanted to end on this because uh, I think that really sums up people's connection to UConn very well, that you know the university was a very different place in 1887, uh, and it was a very different place in 1927 and in 1967 and 1987, but uh, in some way, it's still the same community, the same university, and uh, things like homecoming are ways to celebrate the bonds that uh, we all share uh, at UConn, so it's very nice, and, and we, we thank you all for joining us for this podcast to talk about some of the great things about UConn, If you want more, and who wouldn't want more, uh, you can find us on Twitter, at UConn Podcast. You can find us on UConn Today, where lots of our stories are posted. Um, Julie, where can people find you?
1: I'm on Twitter, at Julie Bartuka.
0: Ken? I'm on UConn Today all the time. (laughs) That's right, Ken does not like the social media. Um, (laughs) uh, So, and I'm uh, on Twitter, at TJ Breen. And so once again, thank you to UConn alumni. Thank you to uh, the Worth Tower. Thank you to our guests. Professor Margaret Rebega and Coach Jim Penders, thank you, all of you, for coming and thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.
1: Thank you.